you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. I love who we are together. I love who we get to be together, who we get to be to the city and to the nation together. And that actually brings me to what I want to talk about today. Uh, You may know that we've been in a series in the Psalms on prayer. We're wrapping up that series today. We've been looking at how how prayer connects us, uh, ourselves to God, our families to God, our our faith community, our neighborhoods, our city, and today our nation to God. But before before I get to that and what I'm going to talk about today, I actually want to announce one more thing super quick. Next week, I hope you'll come back for that because next week is actually my favorite Sunday of the year here at Mosaic. It's going to be amazing. It's something that we normally do the first Sunday in November every year. We're moving it up by one week, and that is our Live Big Sunday. Live Big Sunday, yeah, you hear some folks clapping for that. If that's a, and are nodding, if that's a mystery to you, you got to come back and see what we're going to do and what it is. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but you got to come and see it for yourself. But today, today, I am going to be preaching on prayer for the nation, but it's from a different person, from a different place, from a different time period altogether than this psalm. So thanks in advance for giving me the grace and the leeway to go a little bit off script. Today I want to talk about something important, and the reason I want to talk about it is not only because I know you're talking about it, but because at a very real level, Jesus of Nazareth talks about it, and whenever Something Jesus says intersects with something we're talking about as a people or a culture. I think it's a really good idea to look at that. Today I want to talk about something that can make us all really uncomfortable. But that's okay. Because if we're all uncomfortable together, then we're all (laughs) uncomfortable together. All right. First service laugh at that. You guys aren't, but that's cool. Uh, it's, it's all good. Listen, I've preached this before. The church is still standing, so it's, we're all going to be okay, I promise. But today I do want to talk about politics. And before I even get into talking about politics, before I even get into the words of Jesus and where they intersect with politics, before I even try to encourage you to take some specific actions, which I will do at the end, I first want to try to lay out and talk about why Even talking about this can make us so uncomfortable. I thought of four quick reasons. Number one, it's because everything is politicized today. Everything is politicized today. Masks versus no masks. Schools open versus closed. Forest fires. Mailboxes. Vaccines, no vaccines. How many people are here on Sundays? Professional sports. Dr. Tony Fauci. The list goes on. And here's what makes this so hard. It's because when everything is politicized, there is no middle ground to find any agreement. There's no safe space for disagreement. And when everything is politicized, it makes either you or the you beside you either right or wrong, for us or against us. And when that happens, when everything is politicized, like it feels like right now, it leads to number two of why I think talking about politics can make us so uncomfortable. Because, number two, it means that everyone is fair game for cancel culture. 
Cancel culture. Now, you've likely heard about this. You've likely got an opinion about this. Because this is something that's been around for a while now. We just sort of put a label on it. But cancel culture is just simply turning off someone permanently, deleting, dismissing someone because of one thing the person said or didn't say or one thing they did or one thing they didn't do. Uh, kind of like what you may be tempted to do with me right now <laughs> for using this term. Cancel culture is different than speaking the truth. Or the truth must be spoken. It's different than passionate debate or courageous advocacy. No, cancel culture is rooted in what sociologists are calling now explosive distrust. That's what a lot of people are. Explosive distrust, which is the belief that those with whom I disagree are not just wrong, they are illegitimate and therefore unworthy of any respect or love. For the record, in case you're wondering, I'm not ever going to treat you like that. And I'm especially glad our Heavenly Father does not treat us like that. After all, He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Yeah. Third reason this is hard to talk about. It's because everyone is unhappy right now. <laughs> Everyone's unhappy right now. Now forgive me for both of you who this is not. But I think, I think you know what I mean. I just mean this year has been really hard. And for sure, it's been more hard more difficult on some than others for sure but there's just lots of people who have had a a tough time you're unhappy i'd imagine (laughs) with the government probably you're unhappy with me you're unhappy with your job or the people that you work with or your kids school the list goes on and i think the reason the greatest reason for our unhappiness is because as a people largely we're afraid we're afraid right now and the thing we fear the most right now i think is this word it's the word loss, loss. We fear the loss of our future, the loss of employment perhaps, the loss of our lives, the loss of income, loss of influence, loss of power, our children's future. It's like my wife Carrie said to me recently after another conversation with one more unhappy person. She said this, Morgan, she said, the truth is you're just not getting anyone's best this year. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? You're right. You're right. So, If we could all just take a deep breath and acknowledge that maybe even though we're not getting everyone's or anyone's best right now, we're still getting the best everyone can do, just like you are doing the best you can right now. And if we could all just pause and acknowledge that, I think we would do way better with how we treat one another. Number four, in the middle of all that, all our unhappiness, to top it off, number four, we are, you know this, we are for the most part literally and physically divided right now maybe in quarantine for legitimate health reasons for sure but even so extended isolation creates very real challenging mental emotional spiritual health situations many americans are stuck inside right now with only a television and the internet and i may not be the world's most intuitive pastor but i know that is a recipe for relational disaster It's not going to go well for us as a people. But, 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 but what is so amazing and maybe, just maybe encouraging in the middle of all this discouragement, what's so encouraging about all of this is that it was into an almost identical political environment that Jesus of Nazareth prayed a prayer for you and he prayed a prayer for me and for his disciples. It was into a political environment in his day with all kind of side-taking going on. There were the, the Pharisees. They were the moralistic law keepers. There were the Essenes, those who 
dropped out, removed themselves from society. They were the zealots who, who advocated a violent overthrow of the entire system. They were the Sadducees, the Romans, the Herodians. Everything was politicized, and everyone tried to either trap Jesus to diminish his influence, or they tried to make him part of their agenda. There were Jewish revolts, false messiahs, brutal oppression of anti-Roman views, and everyone was deeply unhappy to the point that you see this. Repeatedly, Jesus' own disciples asked him, Lord, when are you going to restore the Jewish political kingdom? When are you going to take our side? When does our side win? And into that kind of political climate, was different in some ways than ours, but in a lot of ways the same. That Jesus of Nazareth, on the night he was betrayed, he prayed this prayer, not only for his nation, but for the world. Jesus that night in the upper room, he began to pray to his heavenly Father, Almighty God, for those around him, and his prayer was captured for us by an eyewitness there that night named John. John chapter 17, John records Jesus praying this, Jesus prayed this, God my prayer, here's his prayer, is not for them alone. In other words, if you've ever wondered, is something that Jesus said or prayed, is it ever for me personally? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. Not just for his Jewish disciples here. Jesus goes on. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, he's praying for you and for me and a lot of people here in this today. Those who claim they believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world. And here is what Jesus prays for every person who will believe in him. Rich, poor, American, non-American. Those who have ever been in the past or the future a part of a nation or an empire that has come and gone. He prays for every Republican and every Democrat right here. Jesus said, I pray that all all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved so what will the world know? Yeah, he says. The world, he says, will know that he is the Messiah sent by God. When? When you and I, those who follow him, are one. So let me tell you, because you're sitting there like, man, he, he really prayed that. Yeah, he did. Let me tell you what I think this means, what this looks like, what this doesn't mean, and how we maybe can do this. All right, so what does it mean for us to be one in Christ? Well, the first thing this means for those who claim to be Christians, the first thing this has to mean for those who would follow after him is this simple phrase. It means Jesus comes first. Jesus comes first. Here is here's what that means. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach this to you, so get ready, all right? Because of Jesus Christ's virgin birth, because of his incarnation, that means he was God in a body, because of his sinless life, his matchless teaching, his excruciating suffering, his agonizing death, and his literal bodily, physical resurrection from the dead, that means he has proven, he's given proof to all people, the book of Acts says, that he is God, he is king, he is the undisputed and only forever Savior for humans from sin and from the just wrath of God 
on human sin. And because of that, that means he comes first. He has, in everything, he gets the supremacy, Paul says, and what he teaches us comes first, and what he has taught us most of all that is most important is that we love one another as he has loved us. This is called the law of Christ. He said, a new law I give you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, he said, as I have loved you. That means we use what we have for the sake of those who don't. And when we put Jesus first, when we love him first, and we love him most, and we agree that he has called us, he has taught us to love one another as he has loved us, that means now, second, we can create a whole new kind of community, one that is not based on ethnicity first or status first, socioeconomic class or age or gender first, but one that is based on his single unprecedented act of salvation that moves all other identity markers down the list. Paul the Apostle, for example, he was both an educated Jewish Pharisee and a Roman citizen. He was bicultural in many ways. He was on top of the world in many ways in two cultures. He recognized what Jesus prayed right here and he wrote these words. Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this. Here's what it means. So in Christ... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You put him on first. There is neither now Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all, what's the word he says? Come on. Come on. One in Christ Jesus. Paul, what do you mean there's no more Jew or Gentile? Do you mean like I have to have those dirty Gentile pagans into my house? I've never done that. Paul, are you saying I have to love those strange Jewish people? They won't even like let me date their daughters, right? Paul, what do you mean there's no more slave or free? Like like everybody knows Paul, as as the writer, thinker, Aristotle put it, that some are born to rule and some are born to be slaves. Everybody knows that. Paul, Paul, Are you saying all people are equal in Christ? What do you mean? Male and female aren't used as what makes us important. Everyone knows. Like our favorite Roman comedian, Celsus, put it, Paul, that women are hysterical. Paul, are you saying boys are more valuable than girls? That's that's right. Why? Because you are all one in Christ. You've all said that Jesus is your Savior. You could not save yourself through your gender, through your sexual identity, through your ethnicity or class standing. Those things are false saviors, Paul is saying. There's only one Savior. And to follow Jesus, it it doesn't mean those other things aren't important. Important to talk about and work out. But to follow Jesus means you have denounced those things as your Savior and primary identity marker. That's what it means to be brought to oneness. It means we agree we are one in Christ before anything else. Which also has to mean now. You're wondering when I was going to get to it. It means now we are Christians before we are American voters. And I'll phrase that thought, that implication, in the form of this question And here's kind of really most of all what I want to ask you today. Are you willing to put your faith filter before your political filter? Are you willing to put your faith filter that Jesus comes first before your political filter? Now some of you are saying right now, man, thank God Morgan is preaching this because I know a whole bunch of people. (laughs) 
who really need to hear this today? I mean, you say, Morgan, I know I'm already doing this, Morgan. I'm already putting my faith filter first, which is why I am a straight-up, straight-ticket voting Republican. Oh, wait, that's not what Paul says Galatians 3. Oh, no, no, sorry. Those of you who put your faith filter first before your political filter are the ones who are voting for the Democratic candidate or the Libertarian or Green or Independent candidate. Oh, yeah, yeah, my, my point is this. Most of us see no difference no differentiation, no gap between our faith and our politics. Why is that? Why is that? It's because I think we have failed, many of us have failed, to recognize the impact of our environment and our other identity markers on how we vote. And here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. If I ask you today, why are you voting for that candidate as a Christian? Why are you voting for that candidate as a Christian? You'd probably say, Morgan, it's because of my faith filter. Uh, I, I know Jesus, I thought about this, I prayed about it. I know this is how Jesus would want me to vote. Morgan, you would say, it's got nothing to do with my ethnicity, nothing to do with my education, nothing to do with where I grew up, where I live, how my parents influenced me or my community. The only reason I'm voting for that person is because of my faith filter. But if I were to ask you, okay, fine, fine fair enough, why are, say, your parents voting for the other candidate or why are your friends voting for the other candidate and they claim to be following Jesus you would probably say well it's because they're blind to their ethnicity they're blind to how they were raised they were blind to where they were educated they were blind to where they grew up and blind to their socioeconomic status they're blind to where they live so if that's true why wouldn't that be true of you as well if that's true of someone else, is it possible that's true for you as well? Listen, listen. Here's, the, here's my point. Your environment plays an enormous part and has an enormous impact on your behavior. And I know this. I know this. And our staff knows this. Just from leading, here's, a, here's kind of a joke here, leading, let's attention out of the room, leading church services here over the years. That we knew, at least pre-COVID, pre-COVID, which weekends you were most likely to be here. We did most weekends you were most likely not to be here. Which weekends you were more or less likely to be early or late. Which weekends our children's classrooms would have more or less children, children in them. Which weekends our chai tea, when we had chai tea, would be consumed more. These are things based on calendar, season of the year, weather forecast, not actually the weather, but just what the weather person said, and what sport is playing on television at what time. These things affect your choices and behavior, and they're fairly easy to recognize. Now, probably most of you would say, no, 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 no. When I came in the past, I just acted independently. <laughs> but I want you to know, a whole lot of people who love you and who serve you every week know differently. Know differently. And that's okay. It's okay. It's all okay. All I'm saying is this. If it's hard to recognize when an environmental filter is there and when it isn't for you, how do you know if another person has a faith filter on or not? You say, Morgan, I just know it. Oh, I know it like in my bones. I mean, look at all the people in that party. How could someone vote for that party? I mean, it's clear that person doesn't have their faith filter on. I mean, how could you vote possibly for those corrupt socialist Democrats? They are all corrupt, and no one in my party is. <laughs> Really? They are all corrupt. You know them all in their hearts. They are all socialists. Or you say, Morgan, 
I've got my faith filter on. That's why I would never vote for those hard-hearted Republicans. They all hate people. They're all racist. Really? You know all of them. They all hate everybody? <laughs> well, maybe, here's what I'm trying to say. Maybe, just maybe, most, not all, but most Christian people in both parties are committed to doing what they understand to be the best for the most people. And most Christians in both parties care about life. They just go about it differently. And if that's the case, maybe it means that to be a Christian means you don't fully fit in either party. Because if you fully fit in one political party, if one political party fully represented all your hopes and all your dreams and all your plans and all your values and all your cares and all your concerns, that then would be your primary identity marker. And I thought we said that Jesus Christ was the only one who fully represents us and our cares and our concerns and our values and our hopes and our dreams. Let me ask you, are you willing to put your faith filter first? That is to say, I am committed to being found in Christ first, and then to loving one another as he has loved me. See, if we don't do that, church, if we allow ourselves to say that to be a Christian means you vote for this party or that in order to be more right with God and more right with me as your brother or sister, that is the very definition of idolatry. Because see, when the Christian church and the Christian faith gets co-opted by culture war Christianity, by any one organization on the left or the right, the church forfeits her place in society. And yes, we can and we should affirm the core narrative of any organization or ministry that, where, where that core narrative intersects with Jesus' command to love one another. But, but if we are co-opted by, if we hitch our church wagon to another temporary, always changing, come and go kingdom of man, the church of Jesus will forfeit her ability to produce what oneness in Christ can produce, has produced, which is this. The church of Jesus, when and where it's one, can shape a nation by becoming and being the conscience of that nation. The church of Jesus can shape a nation by being the conscience of a nation. The church is called to be the conscience of a nation in whatever nation it finds itself in. And so if we will obey Jesus' teaching to love one another as he has loved us, we can do that. In the first century, it was considered, for example, normal. It was considered expected for the criminal justice system to work in a certain way. Prisoners, especially political prisoners, were forced to compete in the gladiatorial games. They were brutally eaten or murdered by animals or people for sport and for show, and this was called entertainment. In the first century, it was legal to allow you to dispose of your unwanted child. It was called death by exposure. You could drop your child off outside the city, leave them to die there, because after all, who wanted to hear a baby scream to death or plead for its life? You could let it die there. And most unwanted babies were female, not male, because males were more prioritized and prized as heirs. In the first century, love and marriage. Love and marriage did not go together like a horse and care is necessarily. Many men had a double standard. They had their for-show wife, their public wife, their arranged marriage wife, and then they had their mistress on the side. This was expected. This was the norm. Things like pederasty 
relationships between older and younger males, same-sex relationships. These were the norm, and maybe worst of all, slavery was considered as normal a part of everyday life as the sun rising and setting. This is hard for us to grasp this because American slavery, you know, this was race-based. But Greco-Roman slavery was based on all different kinds of things. Everyone was potentially a slave to everyone else. You missed your chariot payment, for example. Your wife became a slave. You missed your payment to the moneylender because your crop failed. Your son became a slave. Your nation lost a war. You became a slave. And if you were too dumb, uneducated, or weak to avoid such a fate, you simply deserved it. But into all of this, into all of this, Christians came together with a message, the gospel of Jesus, with one Savior who commanded them to love one another as he has loved them. And over time, over time, all of these practices were reversed as the norm and many were outlawed. Because Christians said, no matter what a person's done, no matter what they believe, murder for entertainment's wrong. Prisoners deserve to be treated with dignity because our Lord Jesus not only commands it, but he at one point became a prisoner himself. And the gladiatorial games were then outlawed. And now, some of you have seen it, the Roman Colosseum stands as a global monument to Christian conscience. Christians picked up unwanted babies and said, we will raise them. Christians said sex is reserved for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage as a sign of the gospel. And the status of women was dramatically, permanently raised throughout the empire. And by the fourth century, slavery was considered wrong and immoral. Its practice was outlawed. Why? Not because Christians agreed on everything politically. And you know this if you read church history. But these practices were all changed because Christians showed the world that Jesus was who he said he was. Because they loved one another. They loved the you beside you. And when the church has gotten this right, it's changed the world. That's what oneness in Christ does. Here now, here's what oneness doesn't mean. This is what does, oneness doesn't mean. I've already said this. Oneness in, in Christ, in Jesus, doesn't mean we will always agree. And some of you are chuckling because you're like, I knew that. Because, and you knew this, anyone can pick up a Bible, pick up a Bible verse and prove that that verse supports their party. And you know what? On, on a certain level, even if you don't like to hear this, that verse that someone quotes probably does support that position even if your party doesn't support that position. So there will always be disagreements, and especially in a church that is as diverse politically and ethnically as we are, that's just going to be the case. So don't be surprised by that, because many of you walk in here, and you are surprised by that. And I've heard this countless times from people who walk in a mosaic church from all across the political aisle. They walk in here and then say, they say, this is amazing. Oh, look at all the different kind of people in here. Praise God. And we should praise God for that. But do you know what I've come to understand is many times just beneath that? What's just beneath that thought is another thought, which is this. People think, maybe you think, how amazing is it that there are all these different people here who think and vote like me? <laughs> because I'm a Christian and I'm conservative. Or I'm a Christian and I'm a liberal. Isn't it incredible that all these people are going to vote for who I vote for for all the same reasons I vote for them? Morgan! How did you get them to vote for the same person I'm going to vote for? I want to tell you something. If you are surprised that there are people here who vote differently than you, it's because, perhaps, I want to suggest this to you, 
perhaps it means, if you're surprised by that, there's actually no space, no gap, no difference between your faith filter, your political filter. You're assumed they are, they are one and the same and should be the same for everyone. And I want to tell you, lest there be any lack of clarity left after the year that has been 2020, that is simply not true. And let me remind you why that is not true, why that can never be true, and why there should always be a distinction for the Christian between their faith and their politics. Here it is. It's because you, I preach this to you again, you are not saved, you are not righteous, you are not good or approved in the sight of Almighty God because of who you vote for, and you should be glad about that. And neither is your Christian brother or sister. No, a Christian is someone who has been saved by grace through faith and faith alone in the beautiful, glorious, powerful, worthy to be worshipped person of Jesus of Nazareth who will come back to judge the living and the dead, including you, including me. And so now, because of that, if I am excited, if I'm excited about this election, if if I'm encouraged about this election, it is because of the incredible opportunity that you and I and we in the church of Jesus has to prove and show the world that Jesus is bigger than our candidate, that Jesus is bigger than fear, that Jesus and his glorious gospel are able to bring and hold us together. So, so with all that in mind, having said all that, let me close, last thing, by giving you Four practical things I think you can do right now to help show the world that Jesus is who he is and that Jesus has made us one. Here's four things you can do. Number one, I'm going to encourage you actually to vote. Vote. And here's why. We've been given a gift of political freedom in this country. We should use it. Encourage others to do the same. We're supposed to be salt and light and to get involved with that political process somehow. We need Christians across the political spectrum. If this is you, good for you. Involved in the process and serve God that way with their lives. So number one, I'm going to encourage you to vote. Number two, to understand something, and here's what I mean. Of all people, I think Christians should be the most curious people. We don't have, you don't have to be afraid of another person's opinion, of some kind of information that may come to light. Listen, our faith hangs on a fact, the fact of the resurrection. So don't be afraid to listen to someone else's perspective. I'm not saying you have to agree with them, but don't be afraid to try to listen in order to understand. If you say, I don't understand how someone could vote for that person, let me tell you, that says more about you than it does about them. It says you don't understand. <laughs> so don't stay there. Seek to understand. Come on, St. Francis, pray, right? Seek to understand as much as you seek to be understood. So vote, understand. Number three, pray. Actually, pray. Come out specifically to the Capitol building with us this weekend and pray for our city, state, nation. We have two groups going to be praying at 9 and 10, 1 at 9, 1 at 10. Prayer points right there on our app and website. You can go there and register to let us know that you're coming. And number four, number four, I want you to consider something. Consider, I'm going to be real careful here. Consider carefully what, if anything, that you post on social media. Here's pastor's advice for you. Now, Jesus said this, look at this, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. All right. 
Here's what this means. That means that on the Wednesday morning after the election, when the results we're all hoping are going to be tallied and affirmed, right? Right? If you get up and you go online and you greet only, that, that word literally means to salute or to show respect for. If you only show, Jesus says, respect to your own people, people who look like you, vote like you, think like you, go to church with you, or don't go to church with you. If you do that, do you know, Jesus says, who you're exactly like? He says, if we only respect people who are like us, and we disrespect people who don't, we're just like a pagan. We're like someone who doesn't even know him, but we do know him, don't we? Yeah. So let's act like it. Amen? We do know him, so let's seize our moment, church, and show the world who Jesus is because, because, my last thought here, okay, last thought, no matter, no matter who wins or loses the election, Jesus is still king. Is he your king still if your candidate wins? So you're saying, I would know he's actually the king if my candidate wins. No. If he's the king when your candidate wins, he's the king if your candidate loses. Listen, and the Sunday after the election, when some of you come back in here, the songs we sing have nothing to do with who our president is. They have everything to do with who our Savior is, with who our King is. I'm not saying there won't be problems or consequences caused by whomever wins and whomever loses, and I'm not saying you shouldn't feel sad or mad or glad about any of it. You feel how you want. All I'm saying is this, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. He comes first, and He has prayed that we would be one. I want to pray that for us right now. Can I pray for us that we would do that? We would be that? Yeah. Thank you, Eddie, for being up here. Play a little bit behind me. I'm going to pray for help, for grace with this. Lord, you prayed that we would be one because you knew this would be hard. Pray for us to be one because you knew this would be a challenge. Jesus, I think about that group that you, you said this to, you prayed this among in a room full of your disciples, tax collectors, zealots, fisher people, educated, not so much. So you said that they were one, whether they wanted to be or not. Lord, we're one, whether we want to be or not. So help us not only to want to be, but actually to do that. And Lord, we just agree that you come first, that you're king. Help us to live this out. And to love one another through all of this as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.